Welcome to 10 Minute TechCom. This is Ryan Weber at the University of Alabama Huntsville, and today I'm pleased to interview two scholars from Eastern Carolina University, Kirk St. Ahmet and Giuseppe Ghetto. I'm briefly going to have them introduce themselves so that you can tell who's who based on their voices. Um, hi, I'm Kirk St. Ahmet, and I'm a professor of technical and professional communication and of international studies here at East Carolina. And I'm Giuseppe Ghetto. I'm also a professor here at East Carolina University, and I specialize in technical professional communication also and um, user experience. Tara, thank you so much for being here. And the reason I invited you on the podcast was to talk about an article that you recently published called Designing Globally, Working Locally, Using Personas to Develop Online Communication Products for International Users. And I wanted to talk to you about this piece because it's about the way that you can use personas to reach an international audience. And I guess we'll start with a pretty simple question, which is what are personas? I'll take that. I like to describe them as characters in a story. They're characters in a design story. They basically help characterize data. So instead of just providing a statistic or a trend, you put an actual person in front of it. They're not real people. That's one (laughs) thing that confuses a lot of people, but they actually are real people at the same time. They're a person that you actually interviewed, interacted with, but you're using them as a representative of your other users, basically. Okay, so they represent sort of a a segment of your user population. Is that correct? You mentioned interviewing and doing research. You know, whenever I talk about personas with my students, one of my concerns is, it seems like it would be very easy to make a bad persona. Something that's stereotypical or reductive. How do you make a persona that's really accurate and useful and robust and and representative? The way to avoid stereotyping with personas, basically, is, first of all, you sort of have to look at your data very carefully. So it's just like any other form of research method, basically. So you need to look at what are the trends and what is a representative trend and what is an outlier and why are the outliers outliers? You know, just because you have one person who's in your study who, you know, operated in a certain way or had certain needs doesn't mean that those needs aren't valid. Mm-hmm. So it's not a model where you're like, oh, we had three people who did this, so that's the persona. you got to look at a lot of different factors. And it's just like any other form of coding. Usually there's several questions that are in the persona. There's a photo, first of all. Then there's their story. Then there's what their pain points are as a user. And so you use those as your coding scheme, basically. Okay. Okay. And you code all your users for those. So I actually write out kind of like a, a very brief persona for each of my users. I see. I see. And, and so, one of those or several of those might become the ones that you would reference later. That's right. I think, again, when you're dealing with international users, it's I'd like Kirk to kind of speak to that. Yeah. I think one of the distinctions to draw with personas is there's a difference between audience and persona. Audience is who someone is. Persona is how does that person make use of the thing that you're either documenting or developing. And so research takes a slightly different focus in that case where it's not just simply an audience analysis metric. Mm-hmm. But it's also looking at things like interviews, focus groups, ethnographic observational research. Mm-hmm. It's finding out how these individuals that you're that you're going to design something for use this particular thing in a specific context. So it's in many ways contextualized design. And so from an international perspective, it's important because just because we use a technology one way in, say, the United States does not necessarily mean it will inherently be used the same way in a different culture or country. Mm-hmm. And so by forcing individuals to think beyond 
audience, but use context affects how it's designed based upon these are the parameters that either a society has decided works for use, or these are the parameters that limit how a technology can be used. Mm -hmm. really affect how to design it to meet the needs of users in that specific environment. And how do you do that kind of research when it's it's cross-cultural? How do you sort of determine some of those contexts and uses? I mean, we're back to a couple of things. And the first is, again, it's getting beyond a lot of the, the general sort of brute force approaches to intercultural communication. For example, people from culture X behave in a way Y. Right. Well, it's it's more than that. You need to actually start gathering data. Ideally, you can do real field research where you're on site observing how individuals use. Uh, do, use a particular device or technology. That's the mm -hmm. ideal. Quite often, that's restrictive. And so what happens is, in many cases, you have to go with either secondhand information. These are observational accounts reported on by others. Or you can do more direct um, surveys, questionnaires, online interviews. Mm -hmm. uh, if wanted to, with things like Skype, which we're using right now, you could actually sort of set yourself up and watch individuals in an environment from a distance. The big thing you're looking for is People will say one thing in an interview, but they might do a completely different thing under observation. Mm -hmm. So it's making sure you've got as much data about the different pieces of the puzzle to understand what's coming together. Yeah, user behavior is really important for personas. You know, a lot of people say, oh, you can use whatever data you want to build a persona. But user behavior really is the best data to have because mm -hmm. it's exactly right what Kirk says. You know, users will often, you'll say, you'll say, how would you use this application? And they'll say one thing, but then if you observe them using the application, it's completely different. Right. Right. So it's yeah. more important to sort of figure out how they actually behave when they're using the application than the ways yeah. they say they might use the yeah. application. Yeah. Especially in international context where, you know, you're coming in as a researcher from a completely different context. So you can't rely on your usual commonplaces and norms for users. Yeah. I guess internationally it's sort of a three-part process. The first is the questioning, how do you use X, technology X? The second part is observing how it actually gets used. Right. But the third part is follow-up questioning. I noticed that you use this technology in this way. Why did you do so? Uh -huh. And it's, why did you do so? That's the important part. Because there's a tendency to project our own observations and interpretations of things mm -hmm. onto other cultural groups, which can cause some real miscommunication problems. Right. So it's finding out what motivates the behavior that's key to effective design. I think everything Kirk is saying, too, is really important for any type of research. This is why I got interested, actually, in their cultural research. You know, it's really a, a secondary interest for me, but I think they're some of the best researchers in the field mm -hmm. because they're always attuned. You know, I might go you know, study an organization here in Greenville and assume, oh, well, I live in Greenville, so I know what these people's needs are. Mm -hmm. But I probably don't. Mm -hmm. I need, need to still go in and be that ethnographer. There's sort of an extra layer of care with good intercultural research that should be informing all kinds of research. That's I right. can't take things for granted in the way that you might be inclined to do. Yeah, and if, you know, if I understand personas correctly, what you end up with is, as you said, you know, an image of, of a particular user and then some information about how they use the device, software, interface, whatever it is, and then maybe even some information about, say, motives or their context or their situation. You know, some I've seen online, are, you know, Mary is a student, and she doesn't have a lot of time to bank. Um, is that sort of on the right track to describe? Yeah, and there's, there's also usually a tagline. So okay. the example, you know, it'd be Mary, the overwhelmed student. Or, yeah, I think in the article we used Quan, the, the overwhelmed college student. In industry, you're, these are communication deliverables for developers. Right. So these are folks that deal with code all day, not people. Mm -hmm. Often They need help because they do not have time to go out and interview people. They rely on the user experience person to be that lens for the user. 
let's talk a little more about use because you mentioned, you know, the developers use these, I imagine, to make sure that what they're developing is something that someone actually needs. What are some other ways that you might use these personas once you've developed them to either create or document products? Well, one thing it can identify quite quickly is product need. It could be a particular group is using a product in a specific way that it's not designed to be. It's an opening for a new product to be introduced. Oh, that's smart. Yeah. It's something you don't know until you've actually tried it. Right. Uh, Same thing with features. You've got a technology that does certain things, and you realize that the group that's using it finds it limited Mm -hmm. and turns to an alternative to sort of fill the gap. Suddenly, you have a new service or feature you can add to a product that enhances the usability of that product. My answer to this question is I use it all the time. I use them for teaching. I mean, the the context of that article was a class, and this was my first time I ever really used personas, and I kind of stumbled upon the method, but I could not understand how all these competing needs in this class of mostly international students, how I could design a class from those competing needs. And that's what personas do. They, they point attention amongst user needs because those are always present, whether we realize it or not. Right. Sometimes when you're doing usability testing, it's not always clear that those tensions are built around user identity. That's really interesting. I've heard, you know, sort of anecdotally that some developers or designers will even point at the personas and say, you know, does this feature meet quant needs? It humanizes the product as well. Otherwise, it's just the design team making those decisions Mm -hmm. because you can't have the user in the room with you all the time. Right. (laughs) So personas are kind of a way to bring the user into the room. That's right. They're based in actual people and actual data. To be really clear, personas are not composite. You would, you would not make a persona that was a composite of eight informants. No, it's always a real person that it's their story because the folks that do composites, that to me is a different thing. That's a customer profile. So a customer profile is a composite. It's like, this is what this type of customer wants. But that's not a persona because the whole point of a persona is humanizing technology. Well, you're going to break that if you take and you scramble a bunch of people together. Interesting. Great. And Kirk, as we wrap up, can you speak a little more to some of the challenges and benefits to studying international users? I think one of the biggest benefits personas bring is, in many cases, intercultural communication is treated in terms of monoliths. Everyone from France acts this way. Everyone from Germany acts this way. Well, no culture is a complete unified whole. I don't care who it is. And so what personas does is sort of get you to think, well, this is a cultural group as a, a whole that will behave differently from our native culture. But within that group, there are subgroups. There are other groups. Each of them has an equal different sort of perspective to bring and an equal different perspective we have to realize. And I think that makes things much more effective um, from the design process up. So that instead of taking a technology that's designed for one group and trying to retrofit it for another, again, from the very foundations and say, you know, we need two different products or two different technologies to effectively meet these different needs. And I think it benefits everybody. It benefits the creator of the product and the user of it. All right. Well, thank you so much. This is really interesting and helpful. So thanks so much for appearing on the podcast today. Great. For this opportunity.